Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free. Visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Sarah Biller, who I first met when she was the co-founder of a startup and I was working at State Street. She is an entrepreneur, executive, and educator with experience in the financial services, life sciences, and telecom sectors. She is also a force to be reckoned with in the fintech arena, which makes up the vast majority of her current focus. Sarah began her career in the telecom sector working for MCI and then spent several years working for the Corporate Executive Board, a Washington, D.C.-based research organization. Following that, she jumped into the pharma industry with stops at Cambridge Health Tech Advisors, and Indus Pharmaceuticals, and later into financial services with time at Fidelity as a co-founder of a crowdsourced investment sentiment startup and at State Street. Along the way, she was one of the founders of the FinTech Sandbox, which started in Boston and as an accelerator and advocate for hundreds of startups since its founding. Sarah more recently has moved into a mix of investing, board roles, teaching, volunteer work, and mentoring. She has also worked along Cisco's John Chambers and others to expand financial literacy and access to financial services and the entrepreneurial climate in her native state of West Virginia. Sarah, welcome. Good to have you on the show. JR, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's been a while since we caught up, not as long as some other people who I hadn't talked to in decades. We don't have that issue, but you have a lot of different things going on relative to when you and I first got to know each other. I gave a little bit of an overview in the introduction, but give our audience a little bit more detail on the range of things you're up to today. Yeah, JR, thank you. Because I do think of those days that we were together and I could run into your office and get mentorship as one of the highlights of my life. But since we've last seen each other, I have continued with a strong footprint in fintech. I still believe in the power of financial services to create upward mobility, help people have obviously better financial literacy, live their lives. And then on the other side of that, remove the friction in the capital markets, which you Mm -hmm. and I have spent a lot of time in. But in parallel to that passion, the base case for fintech was my increasing observation that fintech itself was ceasing to be a vertical category or industry classification like financial service. And we're starting to see it embed in other places. It's making it easier to get better quality healthcare because the payments models are removing friction, or it's embedding itself in the financing of like solar energy in the home. And I became deeply passionate about the idea that maybe there's a solution for inclusivity or sustainability that married those experiences. Past couple of years, I've really been driven by an initiative around my in my home state in West Virginia, and that is to expand the economy by supporting entrepreneurs who are in Appalachia, but are, who are building 
impactful and investable companies. I've just really niche around develop putting resources to work, whether they need capital in the form of venture capital, whether they need training and knowledge or talent or access to customers. And it's been some of the most rewarding work that I've done in my life because it's a place I love. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that now. We can get to other parts that you're involved in a little bit later, but how did this all start? I know you've got John Chambers involved and others as well. And so you've got some pretty big names in the scheme of things who are helping you take this initiative in West Virginia. Yeah, JR. In fact, I have to give John all the credit. John Chambers in his life, not while at Cisco, but post Cisco, after he retired from being CEO and chairman of the board, began to methodically and was invited by state leaders like Prime Minister Modi or Macron in France to really begin to advise on this idea that you could have an entrepreneurial driven economy or ecosystem. And it's hard for us to think about that in France as one example, where Mm. you have a whole different employment model. And John very successfully helped them navigate that vision. We see today as an example in India, one of the most thriving ecosystems in the world One where they're training in college, they're developing the tech talent, and they're rolling out and developing applications that meet the population where they are and what they need. And I think one day John woke up, at least this is how he tells me the story, with an epiphany of, why am I not doing this for my home state? And we came together. I had some personal reasons to be back in West Virginia, and we came together. He knew I was there to really contemplate, what would you do if you needed to develop a systematic and repeatable process? in an environment which historically had a single source economy by and large, right? It's an extraction economy and the jobs Mm. were created around that. What would you do first if you had to encourage that next generation of entrepreneurs to stay in the state and build their company? And it resonated with me most acutely because I am that child. My parents, right? As a kid, they were like, you're weird, Sarah. You like math. You like science. Girls in West Virginia adult. So you might have to go somewhere. And I don't mean it to be hokey, but that is a conversation that happens time and time again. And with John, with individuals like Brad Smith, who we know from our work in financial services is the immediate past CEO and chairman of Intuit, Ray Lane out of Oracle and then KR, they have come together to help envision and drive outcomes in actually the Appalachian region more broadly around creating a startup state. How did you and John meet each other? You hear me, I'm tickled at the answer. I'm just going to shorthand it and say, I'll give you an example of what my husband, who's from Connecticut, says to me, and in my home in Boston right now, where you and I know one another, knew one another and met, that I can sniff out a West Virginian from a hundred yards away. The West Virginians, perhaps not unique, but I like to think in some ways unique, always stay together. I've been in a backwards Izikaya in Tokyo and someone walks in with a flying WV hat on, which maybe some of your listeners can envision. It's that WV and it's got the little shaking your head. Yes. And rush them. Like I'm a mountaineer too. Like I'm a West Virginian. And I think if I had to think how I met John, it is through those lifelong loves and experiences. And of course, my early technology entrepreneurship days, I've able to reach out to him, Brad Smith, and a West Virginian will always pick up the phone when you call. So he did. That's very nice. Yeah. So how's that all going, the work that you're doing with the two of them and many others? Yes, it is a team environment. It is really exciting, JR. We have, from what you might consider just a modest start, 
not even knowing that what entrepreneurs we might find today in our group that we're called Vantage Ventures. We're on the West Virginia University's campus. We have an office there. We have 40 plus companies that are in areas as diverse as health tech and telemedicine, data and IoT. We do a lot of work with infrastructure, which is the expansion of the way energy is produced and stored or in broadband. We won't surprise you, we have a very active amount of startups in the security space. So cybersecurity and digital identity and computer visioning, but all the way through to what we define as security. And that's working with entrepreneurs in the ag tech space who view it as their mission to close the food insecurity gap. It's a tremendous challenge in the middle of the country, frankly. And then also really creating tools and technologies with teams that are building for financial security. So we have a big fintech practice, but we just had the benefit of having Bill Gates and his team at Breakthrough Energy commit to a $750 million plus investment in the state of West Virginia to build the next generation of iron air batteries. And this extends our ability to use renewable energy where you have a battery stack that might last eight hours Mm. to a hundred hours. You have almost a barbell effect happening in West Virginia as people are beginning to see the region differently and its ability to support innovation. You feel the difference starting to take root on the ground in terms of changes in the economy in the state? I do. And people do. I think it's a, it's been an interesting period to introduce technology and the next generation of these emerging technologies that might be able to leapfrog where there has historically been obstacles in the state of West Virginia. It's a mountainous state. There's not been a lot of infrastructure developed. The first thing is the culture. And do you see this desire to have your children not aspire to go into the mining industry but aspire to see them be in the technology field or grow more broadly into these digital tools. And it is taken, the state has began itself. And I know the culture is changing when the state leadership, the elected officials begin to partner with us in conversations. And they did from the beginning. And it won't surprise you in the U.S., we have some acrimony between the Democrats and the Republicans. West Virginia is not a nerd to that situation, but they have come to the table regardless. You have this amazing confluence of the public sector, the academic sector sits together at the table when we bring innovative companies through, as well as the private sector and investment capital. And that has been a meaningful difference in a small place that has to work together to punch above its weight. It was that way, right? When my family came in the late 1700s, they had to work with their neighbor. It's too hostile of an environment. Today, it's really rewarding to sit at a board table with all these people. Yeah, that's really awesome. Let's shift gears, talk a little bit about FinTech Sandbox. So you were one of the founders of the FinTech Sandbox, which started in Boston, but has moved beyond Boston. Talk about the genesis of that and how you and your co-founders got it mobilized. Yeah, again, innovation's a team sport. I always want to think about the idea. We value these single founders, like everyone's like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. And it's been my experience. Nobody does it alone. The co-founders there, David Jagan, you had Gene Donnelly right in the, the beginning as our founding executive director. And FinTech Sandbox is a not-for-profit, as you correctly said, that started in Boston. We began noodling on the idea in 2014 when we saw the emergence in my category in the, of entrepreneurs and capital markets and beginning to build next generation technologies. In fact, that's how we met JR. I don't know. I, know. I remember. 
you were open to this idea of here's this crazy person trying to really think about the debt markets and how to really rethink modeling. And I was not unlike other entrepreneurs at that time who were innovating just in the wake of the credit crisis, new ways of measuring risk or striking, developing portfolio construction techniques using the basis of artificial intelligence. But what was beginning to stall us all was the lack of access to data. Mm. And data would be, obviously, it's an industry, it's 2000 years old, it's been around for a long time, data has mattered in a lot of decisions, but the procurement process was hard, it was onerous, it was expensive, and it's not a criticism, but you can imagine if you're a Bloomberg sales guy, who are you going to talk to? The industry executive like you who might buy 25 terminals or the little startup who might be buy one? In those conversations, again, credit goes to David Jagan here for observing disparate dots of challenge across each of the entrepreneurs and and thought, what if we actually created a vehicle in which the data providers came to the table and we were able to get data more quickly into the hands of promising startups, those who are able to do with it, do something with it, had coded a landing environment and an analytics. And through those lunchtime discussions, lots of tears, like your company needs data. We came up with the FinTech Sandbox concept and unique to that idea was to make it a not-for-profit and a very strange in financial services to say that we're going to create something that's not going to make money, but it's going to be for the good of the industry. And it's really going to further innovation. It has surprised us all the success that it has had across these past almost 10 years. We have over 250 startups who've gone through FinTech Sandbox and availed themselves of the data sets that our data partners provide. They represent most categories today of FinTech that we think about from payments to lending, institutional retail investing. There's We have InsureTech, a lot of reg tech across the swath. And also what has really been rewarding to us is that we have entrepreneurs on every continent but Antarctica who reach in. We have Latin America and we just took in our first entrepreneurs from Africa. Obviously, we have a big European presence. You've been a longstanding advisor to us in this work. But again, when you think about heart projects and my own experience, if you suffer the problem and you figure out how to fix it and you don't have help someone else who's coming behind you, it's a pretty lame life. I will say that FinTech Sandbox and its work to help other innovators who are doing extraordinary things for the financial services sector has, again, been one of those moments of great joy. And that's where we are. Thank you for asking about it. Yeah, obviously, it's been close to 10 years at this point that it's been going and it's had, to your point, it's had incredible success in terms of the numbers of firms that have gone through it and the way it's blossomed and spread beyond Boston and become more of a global name in the fintech space. I'm curious to get your view, apart from the data, which was obviously the genesis of the model in terms of supporting the startups, what are the other types of support that fintech sandbox gives them that they particularly value? I think beyond data, the first other aspect, and it's quite qualitative, but it's the community aspect Everyone who comes around the table with us, and I look at you as a perfect example, it's because you have a meaningful knowledge set that you're also willing to share. That's not always true in financial services as well. I think if you looked at sort of the qualitative aspect of it, that community, 
our drive to enable them to demonstrate what they've done with the data very publicly. We are the organization that's behind Boston FinTech Week. This year, can you imagine at Boston FinTech Week, we had the Assistant Secretary General of NATO speak to the attendees on a call to action that the world needs a more resilient and community-driven financial services sector. That FinTech Sandbox is that origin story for these leaders to really help all of us see our role in a better, safer, and of course, just more inclusive financial services sector and world. So I think they they appreciate that the mentorship, the access to industry individuals who understand too, that we have an arm's length relationship with commerce. We just want to do good. And everyone who comes to us wants to do good. We also provide infrastructure tools, enable, again, that sharing of knowledge don't you don't have to recode to an API that we've seen other startups do. We'll connect you with a startup who's using these data to unlock it. And that doesn't help anyone's competitiveness. It's a utility to right. be able to connect into these APIs. So we've sought to inspire that collegiality in an industry that just is, it's not really known for that. And I think that's another point of appreciation. And then it does help that the investor community, the venture investor community closely watches our portfolio at FinTech Sandbox opportunistically for investments. We've had some good success stories. Name a few of your bigger success stories. Yeah, we got, again, the universe shines on people, I think, that are trying to do something good, even if it's crazy. Right out of the box, we, our first company, one of our first companies can show many now at this point six years out from their exit, were the largest exit to date for an artificial intelligence powered fintech company. And that purchase, they attributed to the fact that they had data early on from fintech sandbox to train their models. So we had a clear indication that fintech sandboxes who had access to data could build meaningful, large, valuable companies that others would want to purchase. So that's one example. The other might be like Pedal Bank who has introduced in new capabilities and service models to a chronically lower economic marketplace and individuals with emerging financial mobility, they, we enabled them through our data sets. But what they've done now is they understand that the exhaust data that their customers are creating on their bank could be useful to others. The mm-hmm. pedal has created its own data model. You see this sort of mentality of giving back, serving across the category. And then I would tell you one of our most interesting outcomes that from FinTech Sandbox is this momentum that was created around creating regulatory FinTech Sandboxes. Innovate Finance in the UK was the one who took the Sandbox model and lifted it up and said, you want to bring startups and data providers together, we'll do one better. We'll bring the regulators to the table too. And that has made a critical difference in this period of innovation across the globe two startup examples and one matter of really how to affect the way that this cycle of innovation has been sustained through partnership with regulators. And that's been certainly, Janine Hurt was one of the other people that I've interviewed for this podcast at some point last summer. And certainly over here in the UK, in the FCA probably of all the regulators was the first one to really say, we want to promote a fintech industry as part of our regulatory agenda. And others have taken up that banner, but they were really the first. And it certainly has been a, a big thread through everything that Innovate Finance Group over here has been involved in. Indeed, they created a sea change in the way other regions now participate with entrepreneurs. That vision, now we see it with 
in Singapore. We see it in the United States with obviously states creating their own regulatory sandbox. But yeah, it was really just out the UK's vision for what we could do with this cycle of innovation. And now just imagine if we had not began to digitize our financial services sector and we actually still had to go into banks during COVID. Yeah. It would have come to a stall point. Yeah. So a lot's happened there and tremendous success of the sandbox over the years. You've moved into doing some investing on your own. Talk about some of the companies that you've invested in. Thank you, JR, for that question too. It's hard not to be an entrepreneur and want to actually see other entrepreneurs succeed. And one of those those challenges is access to capital. I have sort of two penchants right now, two areas that I'm very excited about in the investment world. Actually, three. Let me take that back. The first is the ability for every individual to participate in the investment in private assets, whether it's emerging companies that match your value set that you want to participate in to private asset categories that sometimes are just have been in the upper high net worth category like timber, but timber with intentionally managed for carbon credits. I'm invested with a company sitting on the board of Rialto Markets. And right now we're the partner to Rubicon, which is Texas Pacific Group's effort to move carbon credits, systematically move carbon credits into the market out of their portfolio companies. Very exciting time. Lots of visioning around these small companies, but it wouldn't be possible if we didn't have entrepreneurs to think about what it means to create a frictionless movement of that capital and store that information and digitize those securities, frankly. And I'm also an investor and on the board of Caleb, which is based in London. It's two colleagues of ours from State Street that a deep and abiding respect for them as experienced executives. And I think I want to underscore the criticality of fintech innovation happens because people who know what they're doing are the innovators. It's been an enormous pleasure to work with seasoned operators and really, again, that put around them the capabilities and the capital to do what they have done for 20 years in their career now in the fintech startup world. And then the last area that I have started to invest in personally and spend a lot of time is the community banking sector. So I'm an investor and, a, and actually a bank director in a community bank in Nashville, Tennessee called Thread Bank. And that has been perhaps one of the most rewarding environments because it is seen firsthand how the application of technology enables the next generation of community bankers to meet businesses where they are. Our definition of community has changed. Going back to how we started this conversation, my small town in West Virginia had one bank. It was on the corner. The banker knew people in person, went to them based on reputation or maybe because they knew they're my father. I got a loan for my first car there. But that has changed dramatically. How do we strengthen our community banking sector, our lending models, and our ability to reach individuals where they are, not assuming that they're going to be right in front of us on Main Street. And very excited about where we're taking the community banking sector through the eyes of fintech. Which is great. You've interacted with a lot of entrepreneurs in the last decade and seen a lot of stories play out, some massively successfully and some less successfully. What do you think makes a difference? Are there some key themes that really make a difference between the ones that have big success and the ones that have some success and the ones that fizzle out? I'm going to quote Warren Buffett. 
I'm okay. such an original thinker with you today. I'm so sorry, but I'm going to go back to some lessons I learned just from the Berkshire Hathaway team last year doing some work with them. And that is that the best entrepreneurs are trying to avoid being stupid. They're not trying to show that they're the smartest people in the room. They're actually beginning to use, really use their experience, their emerging knowledge of new technologies, not because of hubris, because they know that they can actually make a meaningful difference. And so I categorize when I sit in front of, I sit in front of a ton of entrepreneurs still, is this guy or gal going to not be stupid with the power they've been given in fintech? And I think we could point recent examples in the marketplace where that where the belief that you were smarter than someone else got ahead of you. And it's a dangerous proposition when you're dealing with the financial services sector. Yes, very true. You were one of those entrepreneurs back in the day. Oh, which one was I? <laughs> I hope you're being kind and saying I didn't want to be stupid. Well, I'm just curious, when you look back at that era, what did you get right and what did you not get right? probably just in self-reflection could name a thousand ways, as Thomas Edison said, not to make a light bulb. I can tell you a thousand ways not to build a predictive analytics platform for institutional debt investors. Knowing that and just an open honesty, the modest thing that we did get right is an understanding that data was coming onto the desks of professional bond buyers and sellers that was not neatly structured. We understood instinctively that the data that was most important to them oftentimes didn't show up in the financial statements of the companies that they were evaluating the debt offerings to, but were embedded in unstructured pieces of information. Maybe the local newspaper that talked about the manufacturing environment this company had that might not been paying its workers well, or, or the, the the video that was increasingly being used. Remember, I, I built my company almost a decade ago is when we started. And you saw the increasing use of a video as a means to communicate important information. Well, it's very hard systematically to, was at that time systematically hard to mine those video casts. And so we began ourselves, what we got right was understanding that there were new factors that were influencing risk that were emerging, but buried because of the variety of data the velocity in which it was coming to individuals. And, and so the volumes were, of course, extreme. We call it big data today. It started a decade ago. If I had to think about it, we understood instinctively, and it goes back to the power of FinTech Sandbox, that you had to really think about where your information was coming from more holistically. You had to structure it differently and better. And certainly you had to normalize it because of all these disparate sources that would be my hindsight observation. And it served me well because I always now look for the companies that understand too the criticality of data in helping individuals and institutions, companies, banks, whatever, make decisions. Those who disregard it, I think, probably have not learned the lessons that we did in the credit crisis about being able to parse data correctly and see risk. And look, I think to some extent, you were ahead of your time in a way, right? Because you were focused on, as you said earlier, the early use cases of artificial intelligence and that have gotten a lot more traction in the fintech space, certainly since then. Your data source was a tough data source. You depended on institutional investors sharing their honest opinions about something, which they're generally very guarded with. 
It's a different form of a data challenge, I think, than the one the FinTech Sandbox was built to help with. It's a data challenge nonetheless. Oh, for sure. I just think about us matching up what they were telling us with what was being said in different environments and meetings of data. Yeah, JR. The FinTech Sandbox, though, thankfully, has evolved with the emergence of new and differentiated data sets. And if you looked then, our data sponsors, and thankfully, they took a top no chance on us, the Thomson Reuters of the world, the S&Ps. But today, our data providers are coming from vast array of categories. You need weather data, we have the weather channel because you're yeah. building an ESG model or new insurance. It is a fascinating evolution and we're not done. I think if we really believe that we can build an inclusive and sustainable financial services sector, which is what the markets are telling us, this intergenerational transfer of wealth, the shareholders of these big corporations, they want you to really contribute as a company as a financial services sector, as an investor to a social value system that's com- that's quite different, you need those new data sets. Yeah. And so we're intent to go get them and find them and help the data providers uniquely see that they have a role too in making the world better. Yeah. And look, I, you created, going back to FinTech Sandbox, an unbelievable data utility in the scheme of things, right? You got a few early adopters. Thomson Reuters was right there at the beginning. Now we're Finitive. But they were there right at the beginning. And if you think about it, the marginal cost of them providing data to a nonprofit sandbox group is next to nothing. The potential upside is that's potentially a future customer for them that could grow into something big. And back to your example, not to pick on Bloomberg, your example of the Bloomberg salesperson is not going to focus on somebody who may buy one terminal. You created a scalable way for them to access the startup community in some ways That was the matchmaker role that the FinTech Sandbox played to the benefit of everybody. Yeah, and I hope it continues. The other thing that was non-obvious to us, JR, when we started is that the quality of the entrepreneur that would come to FinTech Sandbox because they had access to data, it helps that it's free and that we don't take equity. Obviously, the quality of the entrepreneur who really went out and said, I need this data to prove my point. We're also creating some of the most unique innovations in the market today. You think about Kinshow and their ability to look at unstructured data and provide investment advice that would take a research analyst three days to figure out, but they could mine through that data much more quickly and help draw a conclusion that didn't replace the analyst, but augmented their understanding. That wasn't around until you had these innovators begin to intersect hot technology with data. I like to think that we didn't know that we were going to do this, but we did help spur a next generation of really important products to the financial services industry that, again, I go back to it, help them have a better business, but help individuals, small businesses, municipalities, you name it, pensions, nurses. That to me, we're in a new cycle of that opportunity, by the way. It really, I mean, it's ebbed and flowed a little bit, but the fintech space as an area of investments remained pretty strong over the last 10 years. Yes. And I think I'm going to make this really an argument that I don't feel comfortable making, but it's stuck with me for the past couple of months. As we've gone through a downturn, by the way, in the idea of fintech investing or everything has contracted with the economic uncertainty. But during COVID, what we saw, again, I go back to that example, digital banking 
digital procurement of life insurance. We used to come to have to come to your home and take your blood. Right. That's not the case today. There are digital insurance agencies. We have a responsibility to continue to build out these tools that strengthen our financial system, that strengthen financial services for people, no matter where they're sitting. I say that not wanting to be preachy, like it just sounds even like poor form to say you you have a responsibility industry to continue and investing in innovation. But I don't know another word to put towards it. It's a big market opportunity, but it's also we must continue to support our innovation cycle. We can't go backwards no matter what economic uncertainty we're confronting. Yeah. Like I said, it ebbs and flows, but it's not going away. Totally agree. I'm curious. I wanted to go back to the early days of your career. So you're even before your career, you're in college at West Virginia. As you said earlier, what did you envision yourself doing back then? I have a finance degree. So I knew at some point I'd end up in financial services. Definitely. My parents would have preferred that I had stuck with engineering, maybe built the next Golden Gate Bridge or something. But I think what I learned very early on that informed all of my ebbs and flows in my career, to use your words, or bobs and weaves probably is better, that I could always go home. No matter what risk I took, my door in West Virginia was always open. I had a strong sense that even if I failed at something, I had, not everyone is lucky enough to have that. And so, JR, I don't think I knew at that moment, but for the fact that I was infinitely curious about business problems. And so I became pretty sector agnostic. I was very sector agnostic. I've had two companies in life sciences. I worked in the telecom field. But as soon as I got to financial services, I knew I'd found my home because it has such a meaningful way and an overused word today, but to embed itself in really big, hairy problems, as we talked about. So I don't know if I knew early on, except for the fact that if it was hard and someone told me it couldn't be solved, I wanted to be right in the middle of it. Yeah. I was going to ask you that very question and pretty much answered how I would have thought you would answer, which is that you've really been fueled by a very strong intellectual curiosity through the years. Yeah. Or bullheadedness. It depends on what day it is. They both come in handy. Come back to today. What's a day in the life look like for you professionally now? I'm sure there's a lot of variety. There is. It's incredibly busy on looking at ways to actually connect disparate dots. Right before our call, I'll give you an example. We have some work going on with an affiliate of the United Nations who sees the certain segments of the United States as a place where we can begin to actualize the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And so my call immediately preceding this was, how do you build a home that is financially attainable for the working poor that pays back. So you begin to introduce in new technologies like solar panels on the roof that the individual can take the excess residual power and sell it to the grid, or it delivers, the home delivers clinical health care up until acute care in the home. So you live better and you're smarter. And underpinning all of this visioning is how do you create the jobs, the vocational training that creates a sustainable income. So someone owns this home, they don't rent it. So they're on their pathway to financial mobility and the financial syndicate that would rethink credit for individuals who historically don't have a 1099 like you and I, because they're working three jobs. That's a pretty exciting day. And that's a problem set that's real and can be solved when you begin to connect people like John Chambers into the problem 
or individuals who support the way you frame a problem, like at the UN, my day still has a strong thread of financial services and fintech, but taking that discipline and putting it against different problem sets to expand economies. Our country needs a place where everyone feels like they have the ability to lift themselves back up. I took that away from my upbringing in West Virginia, and I still carry it strongly today. Which again, laudable goal, laudable focus. When you think about what you're doing today, you've done a lot of different things over the years in different industries, to your point, play different roles, entrepreneur, investor, mentor, et cetera. What are the strengths that sort of have helped you consistently have the kind of impact that you want to have in the things you're doing? I hesitate to talk about strengths in that sort of like categorically that word. If I could, I could talk to you about learnings instead. I do think one of the learnings I've had, again, I've referenced back to an earlier statement I made, nobody does it alone. One of my learnings is you keep your network of doers, you keep them close and you draw on them and you align people in their strengths to solve some of these problems. And I learned that from my grandmothers. And if you'll bear with me a little story, because I'm sure. a storyteller, my two grandmothers grew up in the same town. West Virginians are like that. You don't go too far. So both sides of my family are from the same small place. And both of them competed on Sundays after church to bring the best pie to church. And one day I observed my grand one grandmother asking another woman to bring a pie, which was her special thing that she could make this cherry pie. And it was very interesting to me. And it's just curious. I'm like, why would you let her bring your pie? You're proud about your pie. And she said, because if you want people to be responsible, you give them something to do. You don't just, they actually have to show up with something. They have a, they have a part in solving the problem. And I think that's a good lesson for us in life. If you want to like be observed as something you're affecting change or you're making impact or you're building a business, enable people to feel like they're accountable to be part of the outcome and they share in the joy. I think if I've learned anything in life, it's that you don't do it alone and Everybody has a role and a strength. And just and for me, it's been discovering that. I think that's what's helped me juggle a thousand balls surrounded by a thousand people who do great things. Okay. And since we're focusing on learnings, what are yeah. the things that you're focused on learning right now? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so if I could show you in my living room, I'm reading 13 different books right now. So my learning never stops. I'm infinitely curious. I am learning today. I'm very interested in the immersion of the digital and the physical and how the application of Web3 will impact our delivery of products and services in financial services and then the dimensionality of data that's thrown off from that environment. I wrote a, recently wrote an article for FinTech Magazine about the metaverse. And I took a lot of flack for it, but I stand by it. <laughs> I, think, I think we're entering this period of a new renaissance for financial services. I think, again, this confluence of next generation technology will change. I'm deeply interested. I'm learning, again, new technologies, new applications, new ways that data gets shared and captured in an environment that we have never seen. And that learning has helped me understand too, not just the way that commerce might be conducted, but like how, again, going back to how healthcare might be delivered, how an individual who they're today defined as handicapped likely won't be handicapped in our next generation of work. I've got this big itch to understand that completely and marry it with what we learned during coming out of the Middle Ages. So I'm dork. (laughs) <laughs> about the middle ages. I thought I was bad. I had four books going until about 
two weeks ago. I'm down to two as of today, but I've never been at 12 or 13. Again, that composite view of the world mm. is important. And But I am interested. Do you have a book recommendation? Do I have a book recommendation? One book I finished recently, which took me a long time to read, was The Power Broker by yeah. Robert Moses. Very dense book written in the 70s, meticulously researched, incredibly researched, considering that did not have the internet at his disposal. So he must have worked incredibly hard to produce that book. But it was just a fascinating look at how this guy wielded power over the city of New York and the state of New York for 40 years. And it was dense, but it was very interesting. Yeah. It tells you a lot about times and place and what you can do when you know power brokers. Yeah. I also have a little bit of literature I'm reading. I think we need to revisit the 1930s era paper on the theory of the firm. Did you ever read that? I don't think I have read that one. It's like the study of the creation of the new firm structure from strategy to how you treat customers and things. It's time for us to rewrite it. What's funny about business history is that some of the ideas that are much in vogue right now have had cycles before. It's like fashion. Things that were fashionable back in the 50s in some ways are coming back in terms of the way that businesses work, even though the certainly the macroeconomic, political, geopolitical technology environment is massively different than it was in the 50s. But there are still some ideas that they got dug out and resurrected and have a renaissance. It's crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? I'm hearing increasingly what's really in vogue now or what's very interesting to the next generation of like students is they want to own family businesses. Go in to where you see like in the middle of the United States, the transition of a family business ownership structure to children who don't want it. Whether it's a print newspaper and use, if you use that as an example, a newspaper and use the digital tools they understand where they're digitally native to digitize that. It is going, it is such a cool world. Yes, it is. As we said earlier, may have been before we started recording. It's good to live in interesting times. It is. Dara, thank you for that. Yeah. Any final thoughts to share? We're recording a podcast that I have had the benefit of your friendship and mentorship for a long time, and I've enjoyed it. The intellectual exchange that we just had, it makes me want to rethink a little bit too. What's next? Where does a career take you? What do you learn? And so thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Sarah, for doing this today. The same. It was great catching up with Sarah today and hearing the breadth of work she does as an investor, board member, mentor, volunteer, and educator. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Again, it's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.